Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dead Cat. This is Eric Newcomer. Uh, a very exciting podcast episode. I think I was the first... I was just checking this. I was the first to write about Dimension, a new $350 million fund. And I have the entire team, right? Or the three founders, at least here. Uh, Zavin Dar and Adam Goldburn, both from Lux. And then Nan Lee from Obvious Ventures. Thanks, guys, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, dude. And say who you are at the beginning when you start talking for the first time as people start to learn your voices. And I'm just going to throw questions out and you guys can fight about who gets to answer what. But why did you decide to start a new fund in the first place? I mean, you guys were cool venture funds. Like, why go independent? This is Avin, by the way. Uh, Thanks for having us. And in so many ways, we kind of grew up in industry. We were best friends, whether Adam and Nan would say that about me, TBD. <laughs> Nan and I taught at Stanford for four or five years. We first met at Innovation Endeavors. We were roommates in Oakland for a number of years before Oakland was cool. And then Adam and I actually met at JP Morgan in San Francisco in 2014 and also very quickly became good friends. Uh, within nine months of meeting Adam, he had recruited me over to Lux. And then we homed and chiseled our crafts together. We Built our biotech practices at Obvious, where Nan went, and was one of the founding investors, and ultimately a GP, and and at Lux as well. And so it was a chance. How, how both, many years ago did the idea of a oh the three of us might start a fund first? By the way, Eric, I, I will say at the 2014 JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. This is Adam, by the way. You, you you'll know my voice, but the mishmash of Australian and New York, and my wife's <laughs> from Arkansas, so it's a blend. But that, that same conference, I met my wife and I met Zav in the space of an Wow. Hour. So Within the space of an hour, he, he met his life port partner and then, less importantly, his work partner within one hour, which, yeah, insane. So when all, you make all your portfolio companies go public with JP, you know, you'll know. Yeah. <laughs> Are you close <laughs> to the bank? Like, does the bank get deal flow out of this? Or? <laughs> no, no deal flow, but we're, we're obviously close to the bank as we're close to... They, the they were invited yeah. to the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when did you first think, oh, we might do a fun together? Or what, was this like a text thread for a long time? Or This is non, by the way. I, I really think it was a 10-year-long conversation. You know, it, it was sort of this slow build of growing up in the industry together, getting to know each other, definitely being on text threads about this space and what we were seeing and, you know, catching up every time. We, you know, we were in the same city or, or at a conference. So it was this really gradual build. I, I think, especially through the sort of boom period of 2020, 2021, some of the earlier companies that we worked with were scaled and some of them went public and this space just really exploded in activity. So I think there was a forcing function of the, a realization that, wow, this seemingly small area that we used to cover when we were coming up in an industry together is now reorganizing the entire industry. And we're seeing signs of that everywhere. So the three of us just kind of looked at each other and said, you know, our ability to cover this as one member of this broad firm is really limited. And the space is so large and there's so much opportunity that we just felt like we were doing it a disservice. Like The sector deserves its own fund. And we just felt if we didn't do it, you know, the three of us knew each other well. We've been doing work for a long time. If we don't do it, we'll really regret not making that move. Right. It's more fun to think of it as uh, three friends go off in Silicon Valley version of raise a, you know, instead of a band, you raise a fund and get 
$350 million to chase your wildest dreams. But uh, yeah, I mean, you guys are all sort of diehard believers in this sort of thesis. And that's really what I want, you know, the episode to be about, because I think this is a cool fund where it's like, okay, we are, I mean, you kept evoking in our conversation before this, Ribbit Capital, you know, which is a very successful focus fund, very different space that went all in on fintech and crypto and a wildly successful fund. And so I like this idea that you guys see a space that's sort of coming and want to define the firm around it. So, you know, it's life sciences and technology. I sort of get it, but explain to me, like, what is the organizing principle of the investment thesis of Dimension? Well, I think you're you're spot on. When we left and when we had kind of the conversations about leaving and then when we think about what we can become, it's what Mickey Malta did with Ribbit. It's what Sunil and Mike have done with Amplify. It's what Kirsten Green did with DTC and Forerunner. Even Matt and Fred at Paradigm in Crypto and Web3. There's a chance before things are obvious to build a firm and not only capture the best entrepreneurs and support and steward them, but also be a little bit of a rallying call for the broader ecosystem. I think if we do it right, at Dimension, that's ultimately what we want to do and what we want Dimension to become, a form kind of in that mode and in, in, in that ilk. What we saw, and, and we'll keep it high level, but double click in any and all questions, Eric, is that the leading practitioners on both sides, whether they were kind of machine learning researchers and computer scientists at DeepMind or OpenAI or MetaAI or Microsoft Research or DESA Research, they were one by one, uniformly and independently, building out their own wet bench capabilities and then simultaneously attacking biology and chemistry's most vexing problems really over the last three or four decades with increasing traction. And it's not just AlphaFold, there's a multitude of other examples we can point to, but that was happening on the computer science side. And then conversely, on the molecular biology and the chemistry side, every leading research lab, if you go to a Harvard, a Yale, a Stanford, an MIT, a so on and so forth, all of them were increasingly fluent in software packages like TensorFlow. They were all coding on a regular daily basis in a way that even five years ago would have been pretty surprising and in 10 years ago would have been absolutely null. And so the realization for us was that at the two poles, the leading experts were increasingly speaking each other's languages and capital markets were still entirely dichotomous. Today, if you're an investor, you're either a software investor or you're a biotech investor. You're either investing in SaaS and ARR sorts of companies, or you're investing in single molecules and assets. But as the disciplines become increasingly fluent between themselves, the sorts of businesses that can be built are changing in and of themselves. And we had a chance to kind of bridge that gap. In really basic terms, and I'm cribbing from lines that you guys have said, but the part of the idea here is that, you know, there are companies that did like drug research or whatever, and they're, they're the scientists. And then there were companies that had software engineers, and they're the tech companies. And what you're seeing and what's already starting to happen, you know, is those two sets of people sort of work together and build a company, right? Am I getting that right? And like, why would, I guess, if we're sticking with the drug development company example in particular, why would a drug development company need software engineers? Look, if you just kind of go back to the core unit of progress in life science is, is the experiment. It's sort of running experiments. And that's what drug discovery companies do. And that's what scientific labs do, the rate of experimentation, the quality of experiments and the cost have all sort of compounded exponentially over a decade. And the, the result of that is that labs today are just churning out tons of data sets on a daily basis, and it's, it's getting sort of unmanageable. So before, experimentation was very manual, and 
in some ways artisanal, where the scientists could read the output of an instrument or an assay and just sort of infer what that meant and then go about designing the next experiment. But now the experiments are getting very high throughput. They're very cheap to run. And labs are generating data streams that look kind of like internet platform companies. There are certain biotechs that we work with that generate more data per day than Twitter does. And that's where (laughs) sort of data science and software must come in. It's really out of necessity. You know, the way a modern lab works today looks nothing like 20 years ago. And it's really the result of a tremendous amount of progress in essentially every single type of molecular tool that scientists would want to run. So if you think, Eric, then about the tools, the technologies, and the products that need to be built for the modern lab and the modern-day biotech, it's very different to what it was, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. And for us, in Forming Dimension, it was crazy that there wasn't a firm that could invest in what would be what we view as the next, you know, product discovery, drug discovery engines that are out there, a biologist, a chemist, and a computer scientist but also didn't help build and partner with companies and founders that were building the tools and technologies and software solutions that were powering those discoveries upstream and downstream. And so there's this continual, you know, language that goes between, you know, biotechs and and their tools and technologies and products that they use that you need a firm and and a set of investors and partners that are multilingual across that entire spectrum. Would you invest in a drug development company that says, okay, we have a great, like, data software approach? Or do you want to stick to companies that are broadly helping a bunch of different drug discovery programs with software that's shared across companies? Or like, yeah, I guess, is it only platforms? Are you willing to go with sort of a more vertical company? We've already done both. And so even in in our portfolio that that we just kind of announced this week, on one end, you'll get Inveta, which is exactly that drug discovery platform. It's leveraging software automation, next-gen mass spec, in their case, on the biology side. But it's ultimately in the service of finding, discovering, and ultimately developing therapies for human disease. On the other end, the hat that I'm wearing right now, Science Tools, is from a company, Kaleidoscope Bio, and that's a software company that's essentially building, think of it as the GitHub for the modern and the evolving lab that Nan kind of painted out where it's becoming increasingly interdisciplinary, increasingly spread across both space and time. How do you kind of tag the metadata associated with the history of experiments that you've run? How do you make it increasingly reproducible? So on and so forth. And that's kind of the problem that Kaleidoscope is solving, but it's exactly ultimately a SaaS company. And so it will be valued as a SaaS software company. This can all get sort of wonky. So I want each of you just in a decade or like in two decades, what's sort of like the thing the public gets out of this? You know, I, I feel like with AI, which I've been talking a lot on this podcast, and I know touches your world or with the, you know, it's like, oh, we get cartoons of my, I get a cartoon of myself and I get to cheat on my homework or whatever. You know, it's fun because you can sort of <laughs> see right away what me sort of the consumer is getting out of you, sort of the futurist. Can you each give me sort of, I mean, because this you touch a, a bunch of different types of ideas and fields, like, yeah, what's something fun that you hope in a decade or two decades our lives might be different because of this space and the investments you want to do? I think a big one, and, and this has already been happening, so it's, it's not that much of a prediction, but really a sort of a, a forecast of what's already begun to occur is that because of all the new data sets that are coming online, our ability to define diseases will get sharper and sharper. And when we look back after a decade, we're going to realize that a lot of the diseases that are commonly referred to and known today were too broad. 
And this has already happened in cancer, where no one has cancer. They have these specific genetically defined sub-indications of cancer, and those are treated as unique diseases, and they're diagnosed that way. That same thing is going to happen across every major disease area, fibrosis, neuro, inflammation, GI disease. Essentially, no one has Crohn's, no one has Alzheimer's. Those are just shortcuts that we use because we don't know better yet. But right now, the next generation of pharma and biotechs are using all of these experiments and assays to sort of build a data portfolio of these disease areas. And the vocabulary will totally change in a decade. When you say like no one has Crohn's, no one has Alzheimer's, I mean, that's fascinating. Like the actual causes of those diseases are very different or just the types of medicine that you would use to treat them is very different one from the next? Yeah, how we define them. Like if I was to sum up in a sentence a little bit what Nan just said, it's like the march towards personalized medicine is on the technology train, right? Technology is infusing into everything that we're doing from drug discovery to running clinical trials to diagnosing and then ultimately commercializing. And so as you think about, you know, a future where we get better at targeting and discovery, we get better at diagnosing and we get better at treating, that is that march towards personalized medicine, right? As you define diseases better, as you think about them as spectrum of diseases, and then, you know, we end up in a world where, you know, hopefully we're a much healthier and, and treatable population. And a lot of what goes on then in the healthcare services is much more about being proactive rather than reactive. Is it about the fact that I'm different from the next person and my genetics are different or it's the actual disease is different from the disease someone else is getting in? Disease is probably even the wrong word here, but but yeah, is it about my unique genetic code or the... It's somewhat magical. It can be a little bit of both. And so as, as kind of non mentioned, the, if you look at kind of the chronology of oncology cancer over the last two or three decades, it's essentially moved from a death sentence into increasingly so a kind of chronic and managed illness. And a lot of that is because we've found the kind of subcategories that are consistent across the population, but we've become more precise with the actual diagnosis of what the actual genetic condition is for the disease. On the other hand, if you look back even maybe in the last month or two, Moderna and Merck kind of had a, had, a, had a pretty meaningful approval on a personalized cancer vaccine or drug that was an N of one kind of therapy. So it would look at, Eric, your particular mutation, God forbid, and then build a therapy based on your particular mutation as it relates to the rest of your kind of genetic code. Fascinating. All right. That's one. It's not a really, they're not whiz bangs because it's like, oh man, keep me alive when I'm <laughs> you know, hopefully much older. It's We spent the first six months cohabitating and squatting out of Chris from Runway, his office. Yeah. So, so we listened. He, he's a good friend. We had backed him and, and been fortunate to kind of lead the seed while at our prior firm. He's a good friend. And we, we told him we'd stay there for 24 hours and we ended up being there for half a year. <laughs> but we, we listened to his podcast and he had all these kind of amazing kind of anecdotes about, you know, what would ChatGPT look like for video or media and, and so on and so forth. And Candidly, not, not mention this, because the, the modern kind of wet lab today is the largest producer of data, maybe only on par or, or, or surpassed by the hyperscalers today. And so it's very provocative to kind of think about what does ChatGPT or GPTX look like against population-wide genetic data, look like against metabolomic or proteomic or phenomic data. And these are the sorts of problems I think that we're just on the precipice of starting to think about and answer. And again, you get these breadcrumbs like open AI or meta AI opening up a wet bench facility in New York to attack these sorts of problems. 
we can postulate it. It may well be 20, 30 years in the line, or maybe even 10 years down the line. You, Eric, feel sick. You go in, you get some sort of advanced next-gen diagnosis of your illness. And then at the point of care, wherever you are, a custom N of one molecule, whether that's a kind of a small molecule or an antibody, so on and so forth, gets printed for you for your disease at that state in the moment in time, and you take it and you're healed. I can't tell you if that's 100 years from now or if that's 10 years from now, but scientifically and technologically, there's no reason why that's not possible. So this is sort of our second bucket where it's like, okay, applying sort of generative AI tools to sort of genetic sequence. And I, I'm going to, somebody come up with a third, but I, I wanted to ask, like the whole like fold at home or like when there was a whole like proteins, I remember I literally had it like, I was part of this, you know, I want credit. I was, you know, streaming on some like, laptop back in you, the day. You like, had like study and fold at home. It feels like this technology fits into that or like, and then certainly that you guys know what's going on with the whole protein folding thing. What happened with that? How does sort of the current state of technology help it? Well, I mean, folding at or home you don't know, was, or is, was, was this a, too weird of a question? No, no, it's it, it's it, yeah. it definitely is in the lineage of of all of the sort of protein folding and AI breakthroughs you hear about today. Fold at home was a really successful, essentially federated computation project, and protein folding has always been one of the most computationally intensive exercises. So, for computer scientists, it was always this gauntlet of, you know, can we drive artificial intelligence and drive computation to the point where we can calculate the sort of native protein structure given the sequence, given, given okay. the amino acid sequence. And you know, that has always been the hardest challenge in, in these different tests of AI. You know, computer vision, annotation of images was one test. You know, beating a human at chess was a test. Beating humans at Go was a test. But pr- accurate protein structure predictions has always been the one that that was unachievable hmm. until very recently with with DeepMind and the work they did with AlphaFold. But your Eric, your contributions to that definitely <laughs> was part of the same competition. It's essentially the same challenge, you know. Turn amino they, acid have they sequence solve this problem, or it's just they're much better at like crunching through it now. I think it's the earliest innings of right. There is real value in being able to go from sequence to structure. But one of the things we like to, to say internally, and we, we wrote in our letter, is it, you know, biology is the most complex and beautiful machine ever created, right? And so as you think about protein structure, you know, there's primary, tertiary, you know, secondary, and tertiary, and quaternary structures, right? There's modifications, there's complexes. So there are more levels to go here in terms of what technology can do and deliver in terms of really going from you know, sequence to structure and then to ultimately to function. And then well out into the future, the ability to sort of simulate various aspects of biology. But I don't want to diminish from how powerful, you know, this moment in time is, you know, similar to, you know, sequencing the genome, similar to, you know, CRISPR, which is now permeated through every modern lab and every lab on the planet, right? These are specific moments in time. And it's not just those three. There are more and more that are coming that are here. And that's why we're really excited. Can you tell which one of us is the biologist? (laughs) (laughs) yeah you there's a little deference to the phd every once in a while uh, which i think is adam right (laughs) crispr i mean it fits into my sort of folding home i mean i think you know as sort of a lay person just following this industry there are moments where sort of i don't know the technology of biology sort of like cracks in and we all get excited about it and then sometimes i feel like we just don't get like the update or it's like what happened and so like yeah with with crispr i remember 
in 2014, I was writing like very enthusiastically. I think like Illumina is an important company now in your space and sort of one of the markers of success. You know, there there were these companies that were like, oh, it's, yeah, that, that we're going to build on it. And then I feel like it sort of happens and falls out of the conversation. Chart out CRISPR and what it means for sort of your thesis here. We kind of sit at the intersection of two technologies that very much so kind of follow a, a little bit of a truism or a saying, which is that they're magic until they work and then they become yesterday's news. And in so many right. ways, that's true of AI and ML. And in so many ways, that's true of biology and chemistry and the life sciences. What's possible today because of CRISPR should have our jaws on the floor all the time. It's absolutely magical. In 2014, Eric, when you were covering it, that was the very kind of tip of the iceberg of our ability to really kind of be precise and have the equivalent of a copy and paste and or scissors with text on the kind of genetic That's uh, when, code you know, George cells. Church was what, trying to store like book type information the, the book in type DNA information or right. edit yeah. woolly mammoths and all sorts of things. And the reality is today you might not still hear about something like CRISPR-Cas9 in the news. It has in so many ways kind of become that proverbial yesterday's news. But every modern research lab biotech and pharma is using CRISPR on a daily basis if they're doing any sort of research at all. And CRISPR is exactly kind of equivalent or analogous to kind of Nan's point earlier, where it really has followed Moore's law, curves and costs and scale and fidelity and reproducibility. And so it's becoming increasingly powerful and it's giving scientists and researchers and drug hunters and developers increasing leverage in what they're doing. It's just no longer in the news. Adam actually said when he was a PhD in the lab, you know, hundreds of years ago, the, the alternative, <laughs> <laughs> the, the alternative, you know, way before the, the sort of mechanism of CRISPR was invented to get the same kind of genetic changes in cells, it would take him months to order these cell lines Two and years. get them back or Two years. years. Yep. You, know, it, you know, using these, these molecular tools, you know, every lab today has access to those types of edits in a day or, or two day turnaround. So that kind of enabling technology, you're not going to hear about because it's, there's no sort of publicly traded company that represents that technology. It's more of a, a tool that are, is essentially used in every single lab, but it speeds up the process. It speeds up a, a lot of the sort of inputs into experimentation and allows those labs to run much, much faster. Right now, today, there are companies running clinical trials and using CRISPR to treat diseases and genetically modify human beings. Right. And so when you talk about this downturn in public, you know, momentum or press or, or conversation, I mean, maybe I'm a geek and I, I, <laughs> I geek out on these things, but that like that that's science fiction to science fact, right? That like right. we're gene we're editing people today in order to cure diseases. That's mind blowing. And that's coming, you know, much more in the future. I mean, I touched on we so we sort of did a sort of almost bespoke drugs. AI for discovery. I promised three, so I don't want to deny the very attentive listener that we've talked about tons of wonderful things. Anyone else have a, another area where you're optimistic sort of over the next two decades? It might be fun to talk about something like Moderna and the kind of COVID vaccine as, as an existence proof or sure. as, a, as a kind of indicator of what's possible if we rally the right resources around something. And that was a, again, if you look at the history of our ability to develop vaccines. It's traditionally taken, you know, years, if not decades, and hundreds, if not billions, if not tens of billions of dollars of research and development costs to develop vaccines. And so when COVID first turned around, there was a very smart and sophisticated group of people who said, 
we're kind of fucked. Like it's going to take five to 10, maybe 15 years if we ever find a vaccine for this thing. And if you look at how Moderna actually developed a vaccine within, within 24 hours of sequencing kind of the epitope or, or, or the protein, they had actually developed what ultimately would become the first vaccine that they took to humans. And all of the kind of time after that was in and around synthesizing it, in and around testing it in various kind of in vitro and in vivo models, and then ultimately also testing it in increasing kind of scales of, of patient populations. But the ability to, within 24 hours, actually find and develop the vaccine or the molecule in this case, again, there, there's this kind of, um, he's, he's, he's persona non grata uh, as a comedian in, in, in many ways, but Louis C.K. has, has this bit from, I remember when, when I was in my early 20s, about every time we fly, we complain, oh, the Wi-Fi is not fast enough. Right. Like, uh, like the hostess isn't bringing me my soda. Like I feel squeezed in the, in, you know, in the middle row, in the middle seat. But like, holy fuck, you're in the air going 600 <laughs> miles an hour across the planet. And, right. and, and that's, that's how we should feel about what's happening in biology. And what's and kindling was also happening on software and ML and AI. And the interstitching is like, they're compounding in rates that I think Nan, Adam, and I all sometimes feel like we're the only people who are seeing what's happening and it's unreal and it, it should yield like unwavering optimism and excitement, but it's oftentimes easy to get lost kind of in the minutia of the details and or take it for granted. The reason why this question is really important is that to the general public who are not in these labs or, or you know, working hand in hand with these companies, you know, they're not seeing the results. And, and essentially commercially approved drugs are the last indication of progress in the biotech industry. You know, we talked about an acceleration of experimentation, an acceleration of asset discovery and, you know, crafting new compounds that are more targeted, more powerful, but those are still moving down the pipes in clinic. So, you know, I would say the larger prediction is essentially there are only 4,000 commercially approved drugs in the market globally. And that number is sort of steadily ticking up, but you're not seeing that exponential growth yet. In five, 10 years, we're going to see the output of all of these sort of generational leaps and tools. And we're going to see this era of really unmatched productivity. And that, that directly affects patients. Do you have many companies where it feels like what they're doing is going to touch the sort of the masses? Or is it always the case that healthcare is sort of helping the very sick. And so it's it's only really going to come up in your life when you want some sort of disease treatment. I, or the very wealthy, right? No, some of these it, things like, are like, if you, yeah. I, I think all of us, I mean, frankly, if, if you interact with the healthcare at all, you, you probably rate it as a very low NPS. You hate right. going in, you're always in lines. Like you go from a doctor to a specialist back to a, you know, a, a PCP and they all lose their data. There's no kind of information flow with them. Healthcare, is the largest subsector of the GDP. It is the only subsector of the GDP that doesn't have increasing economies of scale and productivity brought to it from digitization and technology. And importantly, 90% of it is on clinical services, is in healthcare kind of patient care settings. And so it's when we don't have the ability to treat or to diagnose a disease early, they end up becoming so bad, so catastrophic that these patients end up in these kind of heinous, horrible kind of circumstances. And that's where really where the costs come up. If we do jo our jobs right, and as Nan mentioned earlier, if, if we move from a world of intense kind of discovery and development scarcity into a world of radical abundance, both in terms of biology and chemistry kind of discovery, but then also in the downstream effects of therapies kind of coming down the pike, if that happens, it starts to change kind of the cost curves. We're no longer spending billions and candidly globally trillions of dollars on healthcare services, curing patients or attempting to at least manage illnesses once it's too late, 
but we're treating upfront as early as possible those patients so that those diseases never manifest or never mature into those kind of end states. And Eric, like I, uh, I don't want you to think about what we're talking about is just for those that have access or, or just for these rare diseases. Two companies that, you know, we started our prior firms at Lux, you know, one was a company called Calliope, where I, you know, I was actually founding CEO of, that was focused on the gut-brain axis, this new kind of two-way communication mm-hmm. highway between the gut and the brain. And that was deploying all these cutting-edge technologies like single-cell sequencing, organoid technology, yes, kind of machine learning on top of their data sets and their atlases that they generated, but they were focused on you know, metabolic diseases, obesity, diabetes, things about IBD and Crohn's, gastrointestinal disorders, right? And then thinking about other mental disorders because you can there's a world where you treat you know, mental disorders through, through your gut because it's, it, it's connected. The second company that we founded was a company called Kahal Neurosciences. We were part of the, the founding team there. It's an amazing company over in, in Seattle. Ian Pycon and, and the founders there, Andrew Durbin, they're incredible. You know, technologists, scientists, they're focused on Alzheimer's, right, and Parkinson's. And so, you know, deploying these cutting-edge technologies like viral technologies, imaging technologies to automate scale and do throughput in drug discovery is not just targeting the very, very unique, you know, diseases it's targeting, you know, it's permeating across the entire disease spectrum, whatever that disease is. Yeah, and I think you can think about, you know, the, the, the average patient and the way we think about healthcare is very reactive. You know, as I've mentioned, you know, most patients are not self-aware around their healthcare until, until they experience symptoms and usually severe symptoms. And then they're managed through this highly complex and inefficient healthcare system. But the reason that is, is, is really because of a lack of specificity in, in diagnostics and in awareness of what's happening in health progression. So the human body is just a highly complex system. It's, a, it's an engine, and it's, it's essentially this bag of chemical reactions sort of <laughs> happening at a rate of billions per microsecond all over your body. And then once in a while, things go haywire and you experience a symptom. And I think for the average patient and, and the, healthcare, the healthcare industry is with more precise medicine, comes along with it more precise diagnoses and preventative diagnostics. So we're moving into a space where I think it's entirely reasonable within the short term, you know, a 10-year window where an annual checkup will come with a blood diagnostic that gets funneled into this sort of genomics and proteomics analysis to sort of pinpoint issues that are happening before you express disease, before you're symptomatic, before you have to go see a specialist and medicine is given to you at that stage. So to a, a normal person, I think that really changes their experience with healthcare. One of the amazing things about, one of the things I love about like the iPhone is that it's like a technology that the best version of which is available to sort of the mass public. Obviously, it's sort of still a wealthy set of people in America, you know, the Western world. But, but you know, like there isn't this like billionaire phone that is so much better, right? Like the fact awesome. I love it that. needs yeah. to be mass produced for it to work. And so there isn't some like secret phone that you're like, you really wish you had. With medicine, where are we on that? Or like, do you think if I'm a 50-year-old healthy billionaire versus a 50-year-old regular person, like what's the gap between the quality of my like health? Is there a lot that billionaires like really can do? Or are they just like poking and prodding themselves with little benefit? Or what's your sense of the gap? And do you think it's going to grow or shrink sort of over the next decade? 
I have some young mice in my freezer that I inject blood from on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I wasn't thinking about just the blood. I mean, is the blood transfusion thing happening? Or yeah, you guys Zav, must be, Zav, Zav is doing a transfusion as we speak, so. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think, That's, yeah, is there a big gap between what a, what a yeah. I, I, I think the biggest gap is around the dependency of most people on insurance companies and reimbursements to access healthcare, both medicines and procedures and also diagnostics. And, you know, those in, in sort of the 1% and, and what whatnot can can take charge of their own healthcare. So there are a lot of different sort of preventative scans or diagnostic tests that can be run that insurance companies would never reimburse because it doesn't really make sense across their population. Uh, a really good one is a company called Pranuvo, which does essentially a whole body CT scan. And I think it's on the order of two or $3,000. That's not reimbursed. CTs are only reimbursed when there are symptoms by the healthcare system. If you have sort of symptoms that indicate you might have a tumor or a growth in you, then it's beneficial for the insurance company and for the clinics to go image you and, and try to you know, locate the problem. But if you, ha- if you have access to that cash pay, you could go do a Pranuvo scan every year a whole body CT, you would see the earliest indications of sort of, you know, phase one, stage one cancers before you would experience any symptoms. And it's getting into that sort of preventative diagnostic. Do you guys problem, like, do you do that? Is that too much? I, ha- I haven't. Uh, yeah. I just went to my primary care provider for the first time in five years a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not it. like living, you're not living, because I mean, the, Adam, I, Adam I, has I've to tell asked, me how to go to the doctor. <laughs> so. I, I've asked like rich people before and it's like the risk of these scans who don't do these scans and like the issue with the scans is, you know, you could scare the shit out of yourself or like doctors won't always tell you to do them because you find these false positives and then you drive yourself crazy or, you know, they're, there's just like lots of downsides still to over-testing. So that's why I do, it's a legitimate question whether there's this secret sort of medicine or biology world that people are missing. For something like the Pronova scan, until, until we actually know what to do with that downstream data, it's, it's, it's harder to kind of get it uh, kind of insured. It's not to say that yeah. it shouldn't be offered to everybody, but, but quite frankly, like the things that do pass the FDA process, to your point earlier, it's the one area in technology or consumer goods where what the poorest of the poor can access today is what the richest of the rich could access 20 years ago. There is exactly kind of this, things are forced to go generic. Every drug that was kind of discovered 20 years ago is now off IP, off kind of patent life, and, and essentially kind of uh, should be available at cost plus margins in terms of how, how expensive it is to manufacture that. And there's no other technology out there. I, I really love your kind of example of, of the iPhone and the laptop. We use the same iPhone and the same laptop that Elon Musk, Bezos, or Gates are using right now. And like that's that right. is that is power of kind of the democratization of technology. We also use the same drugs by and large. There are and there will continue to be billionaires, millionaires, so on and so forth who kind of experiment. But they're also taking on the risk of those experiments themselves too. And again, until those things are provably efficacious for a broad population of people, they shouldn't be kind of reinsured, nor should they be kind of approved through a regulatory process. Right. I was just talking to Scott Sandell, you know, the top guy at NEA. They raised a $6.2 billion fund. And, you know, when they announced it, I mean, they, they put health right in the headline. Like, I think health broadly is very popular in, like, the venture capital world right now. I mean, you guys have a much more specific sort of lens at it. Are, are there parts of sort of the VC conventional wisdom on health investing 
not any in particular, but just VC health investing generally that you disagree with? Or are there some of these health bets that you're going to try and steer away from? Or yeah, how do you see your approach here fitting into the excitement around sort of health, digital health, what have you broadly in venture? As we think about the digitization of life sciences, the entire industry that, you know, pharma and biotech and life science companies like Danaher and Thermo consume, that is an enormous opportunity and an enormous industry, right? And so we, we feel like that's enough to digest on our plate and not have to, you know, also focus on partnering with companies that are building, that are doing really interesting things, but are, you know, selling care coordination tools and technologies or selling into hospitals or selling into doctors or building the next EMR or building the next health insurance company. It, it, it is an enormous industry, but the one that we feel like we're focused on deserves its sector-focused fun, and that's why we built Dimension. And with concentration and focus, we feel like comes, you know, you know better outcomes and, you know, greater capture of value, as we, we spoke about some of those firms before that, you know, have, have done it on being sector-focused. So I'd say that for us, you know, rather than being, like, incredibly broad throughout the entire healthcare ecosystem. You know, our focus is on the life science industry. I like the dynamic in the life sciences industry where you essentially have completely aligned incentives across all the key stakeholders. So medicines are valuable to develop. Pharmaceutical companies want to get access to research, want to get access to budding medicine in the making, and biotechs and startups are rewarded for contributing to that progress. And uh, you essentially, all the wheels are turning quite well. I think universally across both founders and also, uh, you know, generalist VCs that start to do work in healthcare, there's an underappreciation of how much incentive change, incentive alignment and behavior change is required, even if the technology or the software or the product is developed well. In our world, if you develop a medicine that you know, shows efficacy and is, is screening well and testing well, there's a clear-cut path for it to go through the developmental process and get in patients and generate revenue and, and build value. That's often not the case in healthcare, where you have to convince you know, regular people to change their behavior, or you have to ch- convince hospitals to change their behavior, or insurance companies. So I think venture over the last decade, especially in sort of a cheap cost of capital world, funded a bunch of companies that are taking real shots at changing the healthcare system, and that's good for everyone. But in their world, it's not a meritocracy. They have to do work in sort of politics and galvanizing the change. In our world, everyone wants the change. Even the incumbents, you know, want what we're talking about. Eric, your your question on kind of like NEA and the broader venture ecosystem. One, having just kind of grown many, 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 many gray hairs with (laughs) what feels like increasing arthritis, uh, having raised 350 for Dimension One, we are humbled (laughs) and and in shock and awe by Scott Sandell, NEA, 6.2, like, yeah, it's it's hard to compute uh, what that looks like and and, and kind of the trust and conviction and, and proof that they must have shown over many, many, many decades of really kind of intense investing with their LPs to gather that, especially in today's environment. So kind of all hats off. On the other hand, we saw directly at our prior firms and then also from the eyes of the entrepreneurs that we had backed that founders today who are building at this intersection of technology and biology and the life sciences they are stuck between a rock and a hard place. On either end, they have a Faustian bargain. They can go to you know, uh, an NEA, which might have you know, 5 or 10% of their GPs spending time in the life sciences. They might have their med tech device, uh, med device team in DC. They might have a 
biopharma team on Sandhill, so on and so forth, but there's not cross-collaboration. Um, ultimately, when the founders go in, there's not kind of firm-wide, top-down conviction. It is one of the many strategies that that kind of firm deploys. We, non Adam and I, we, we kind of started joking early on when we launched Dimension. We would kind of go into meetings and say two things. We would quack, 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 like a Mighty Ducks <laughs> reference. We, we fly as one. And then on the, on the other side, Eric, you, you do have, as non mentioned, kind of the traditional biotech investors, whether they're in Seattle or Cambridge or San Francisco or San Diego, so on and so forth. The Atlases, the Polarises, the flagships, the arches of the world. And again, loads of respect. What they have done, we were just at dinner last night. You're catching us in Utah right now for a GP, for kind of our team offsite. But we were sitting yeah, at dinner yesterday. Yeah, they're all in a cabin, by the way. <laughs> and we, we sat at dinner last night, kind of in for, for a solid 30 minutes, really talking about kind of what they are uniquely able to do and, and, and their historical success rates, which are impressive. But they have also, at the same time, simultaneously been historically very reticent to accept technology. They've been ludites with respect to technology. And they're starting to come around, but we believe it's not just a muscle or a capability that you can Frankenstein on. Both an investment firm and onto the actual company, it needs to be kind of organic and built from scratch, realizing the new world that we sit in. In terms of your fund specifically, do you think there will be deals that you do where the logical follow-on round comes from those sort of old guard biotech funds? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you think about, as I've mentioned one of them before, like what Bob and his team at Archer are doing is incredibly impressive. And I, I think... You know, Bob starts to think about the world and Arch start to think about the world where they they want to get involved in some of these broader discovery engine platforms that we we invest in solely across the biotech space. They are intrigued about the software, the tools and the instruments that are kind of digitally native, you know, or cloud forward. So, you know, and, and I think there's a ton of room to collaborate. There won't be, you know, not all of them, I think is probably the best answer to your question. You know, some are focused on kind of those building biotechs that are focused on a single asset or a dual asset or a you know, low-hanging fruit that still continues to exist in bio and drug discovery. And that's very lucrative to some of these firms in their playbook. And, and they've created a ton of value and candidly created a ton of really impressive, you know, therapeutics drugs that have real treatments out in the real world. So, but that, you know, some of them will, will, will see, you know, what we're doing is too far, you know, too far of a stretch for within their own strategy, but some will, you know, will co-invest with and, and partner up with. And, you know, I, I was texting back and forth with Bob, you know, a couple of nights ago saying, let's find deals to do it together. There's an argument that sort of the low interest rate environment was like the best time for this sort of futuristic technology investment. That was sort of the window. And now with interest rates going up, people are much more oriented around profits, like SaaS companies, software companies, where there's no question that they'll be able to figure out how to monetize, need to make profits sooner. If that's the mentality of the moment, will there really be a lot of appetite outside of, you know, your fund to bet on companies where maybe the follow-on round, you know, the company still doesn't have revenue and it's still sort of a, a project? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that what we're recognizing is, you know, new industries are always the best investment opportunities because there's true alpha. There's inconsistency of understanding, there's inconsistency of underwriting, and investors by their nature should be seeking out those opportunities, especially in venture and growth equity. So yes, cash is more expensive today than it was two years ago. You're going to start to see, a, a, and you're already seeing a sort of a return to pre-2020 levels in terms of fundraising activity, funding levels, round dynamics. But that doesn't really take away from the broader worldview, which, which I've mentioned, this is the largest category of the GDP. 
there's real dollars going into life science and biotech up and downstream, you know, in preclinical development, in selling off assets, in selling data access into these these discovery engines and what insights they find. So along the way, you know, we think our businesses do inflect value in a short amount of time. They're not these sort of science fiction deep J curves where they need a decade of, of funding and sort of countless hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, they're showing platform progress between seed and A. They're starting to develop medicines between A and B. They're getting human data between B and C. So along the way, those are real milestones. They're not SaaS milestones, but to this broader industry, which is a huge category, the most acquisitive industry in the world, those milestones accrue value. You know, pharma buys phase one assets. They buy phase two assets. So, you know, we're here to help guide them. And we think there's a whole world of investors that understand those milestones. And it's certainly our job to help sort of galvanize the space and to to standardize the KPIs. That's why and, we're having this podcast right showcase, now. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so it's, you know, we play a role there. We just had a dinner earlier this week with 20 growth investors talking about this exact space, the intersection of technology and life science. And they span from growth equity to hedge funds to sovereign wealth funds. And they're all interested in this space. They know that innovation's coming. They see it sort of empirically just through, you know, where the practitioners are and what's happening. So we're, we're very confident in downstream capital it will be disciplined capital, and I actually think that's a good thing. Zero interest rate environments with infinite cash don't build companies. I actually think that better companies are built during times like, you know, kind of where we're headed right now. Would a real Theranos fit in your investment thesis, and will we ever see one? We backed at our old firm, a company Thrive. Lux. You guys, <laughs> yes, Lux. The firm that's that right. will not be mentioned, you guys don't say anymore. Uh, Lux. <laughs> we, we, we backed at Lux, uh, <laughs> a, a firm. Um, a firm. God, like, we Sorry, can get out of Voldemort, I, Voldemort <laughs> Harry Potter things. Uh, like, let, I'm happy to do that. We backed at Lux, uh, a company Thrive Detect, which was doing uh, single blood draws for multi-cancer kind of diagnosis. And so that's not quite Theranos, but it's kind of, adjacent. And those technologies are increasingly on the come. It will happen at some point. Again, there's no scientific reason why that's not possible. Obviously, like finding entrepreneurs who aren't fraudsters, who aren't hustlers, who aren't the equivalent of, you know, what Elizabeth uh, Holmes was and or SBF at FTX was too. And then stewarding them and really underwriting both the technology, the science, and ultimately the business. How, you know, raising a People said it couldn't be done. You know, it's like uh, you start every every old school venture firm right now is saying, "Oh, the new funds are in trouble." You know, and you guys are a pretty big new first fund. So, congratulations. What were the war stories? What's the mood among the limited partners, and how did that play out? Yeah, the the, the first thing, I, you know, I think this is back to one of your original questions: is how did we come to be? Right, we we've known each other for a decade. We're friends. Zav and Nan have lived together. You know, it's been a decade long. I want to say conversation, but it sometimes, you know, robust intellectual debates as well, chiseling away at the thesis. But when we started and when we left our firms, we left with nothing, right? We had our reputation, we had our network, but, you know, we had an idea of where we wanted to go, but we didn't have an anchor or LP or, you know, we didn't even have a name. And, you know, Nan shifted his family over to, from California to New York for, for a month. And, you know, we put ourselves in, into Chris's space at Runway and, just hunkered down and came up with, you know, everything from, you know, thesis and collateral to thinking about how we wanted to position ourselves, what was the message. And as someone that like hasn't truly in the past jumped into like a, you know, build it from scratch, entrepreneurial, everything on the line, 
situation. It was the most exciting, you know, time of my life. And I think our lives, I'd, I'd speak to, you know, for, for the, for the three of us as well. So is it a lot 100%. of spending money on lawyers now that I have my own like newsletter. I mean, I don't spend a lot, but it's just like you start all the la- random shit you need to get other people to do. You're like, Oh no. Hi, hi Sarah. Hi Arnold. <laughs> hi, <Lou. laughs> they're, they're actually listening to this and billing us right now. <laughs> this is, this is like what, like we, the amount, that our kind of friends, peers, contemporaries in, in, in industry kind of really came as kind of uh, supporters, advocates, advisors, mentors for us as we launched it was something that we absolutely needed. We didn't know we needed, but in, in, in retrospect, we absolutely needed. And in retrospect, we had no idea to even ask for it or that it would happen. And if there's ever a chapter written about Dimension in some future kind of anthology, uh, which I hope one day we, we build a firm that you know demands that sort of attention, an entire chapter will be on Semel and Chris and Matt at Paradigm and Weston hmm. and, and and so many of our friends who on day one both gave us exceptionally strong stewardship and advice and mentorship and guidance, but then also were so generous with their most scarce kind of resources, which is their LPACs and their advisors and, and, and their investors. And so that gave us critical kind of uh, fuel entering what was, as, as Nan, Adam, and you have already discussed, a buzzsaw of a market. And then we would not be here without them. So that that was just like the coolest part. Getting the first anchor, you know, what can you say about that? Or that must have been quite the experience to have sort of an anchor. It was a very good... Yeah, like, we, we started amazing. the fundraise. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, I, I was just talking it, about the email. It, it was fun to it, it, it was one of the leading allocators on the planet, and they uh, were progressive and understood kind of exactly the kind of this confluence of, of of technologies between the life sciences, software automation, and hardware. They were paying attention to the space, and to their credit, they were amongst the first people who reached out to us and who we spoke to. Uh, and then they remained the largest kind of check uh, in our fund. And so, you know. And they just send you an email. They're like, all right, we're going to put this much in or what? They had trekked us and known us for a long time. Right. You know, all three of us through our, our, our prior firms, Lux and Obvious. And they moved quick. We had a number of conversations. We met there. It was a little bit like the roles, obviously the roles reverse, right? They saw a really interesting opportunity. They wanted to really partner and they moved with ultimate conviction. Uh, so you that. play it like a startup. You're like, I don't know. There are a lot of people yeah. who want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. G- GPs don't have that leverage. LPs know it takes it yeah. takes so many I've been telling some of my founder friends that raising a venture firm is kind of like raising for a startup, but you need 20 term sheets because of how much most LPs are are committing. So right. you, you get to sort of briefly high five and celebrate, but then it's it's kind of rolling into the next meeting. And and we just did that for six months straight between May and November. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you guys for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. And uh, good luck to you. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks for Eric. having us. Big fans. Yeah, Thank you for hosting us. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.